You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Well, good morning again, everyone, and a happy belated Thanksgiving to you all, and... A happy new year. Some of you look confused. Did you know that today, the first Sunday of Advent, in the Christian calendar marks the beginning of our new year? It looks kind of like this. So on the Christian calendar, uh, you've got all these different colors that sort of highlight all the different seasons we walk through. You got Easter, you see Lent, and all those various things. But in the top right-hand corner, you'll see that how we believe the new year starts is with the story, the season, of Advent. Why? Well, you see, friends, it's because if you're new to church or new to our church or new to a church that uh, celebrates Advent, Advent is the season of the year, every year, where we anticipate, we actively await the arrival of Jesus into our world and into our lives. And so in many ways, this season is one of a fresh start. We can have a new beginning. We can try and trot out a new path to sort of be the people. Again, I'm going to make a commitment this time. I want to be the person that I want to be, that God's calling me to be, that the world needs me to be. Back to the title of this whole sermon series, Advent is a season for those who are ready for something new. And I don't know about you, but as we were sort of approaching Advent this year, I found myself very, very, very uh, looking forward to this season and needing this season. Reason for which is because, uh, so Walter Brueggemann, uh, he's one of my favorite authors, one of my favorite uh, Christian theologians, he says this. He says that in the Christian life, uh, most of the time, most of the time, you are in one of these three stages, one of these three stages. They look like this. Most of the time in our Christian journey, in our faith journey, you're either in a stage of orientation. So orientation is a stage of learning. You're learning the ropes. You're learning what Jesus is about. You're learning about the implications for how Jesus taught and what that means for your life. But then there's other seasons, which he names disorientation. These are seasons of unlearning. So these are seasons where you're like, man, I always thought this was true. I always believed this was the way that it was. And then my whole world got flipped upside down, and now I'm reevaluating what is actually of God and what is not. And the hope is that God sends us through these journeys so that God can reorient us, reorient us to the ways of God, the ways of the kingdom, so that you and I can become something, someone new. And you might, you know, look at this and you might be like, yeah, I think I'm more here or more there. But I will say this. I believe one of the things that holds every single person in common today, whether you're, again, you're watching this at home or you're here in person, I think one of the things that holds all of us in common is I don't care who you are, these last couple of years were a season of disorientation, were they not? It was a season where we couldn't really guarantee much or predict much. But what's fascinating is that I don't know if this is the case for you, but at least for me, the disorientation 
also was oddly liberating in the sense that I felt like I was being invited into a reorientation. Over the last couple of years, as hard as they were, I felt like the disorientation was actually inviting me to, I don't know, be more present, to be more committed to the people that were most important in my life, to not have so many things that I had to be responsible for. In some ways, it was freeing. And now, now, you know, it feels like, you know, we're in this weird stage as a culture and as a world and as society where it feels like things are becoming more stable, uh, at least they're stabilizing out a bit. And I'm watching something happen. You see, one of the things that uh, Brueggemann didn't put on this is that there's actually a temptation. There's a trap uh, in regards to this cycle, this stage. It looks like this. That when you go through disorientation, so you go through a season of your life where you're like, wow, like I feel like I'm reevaluating things and reassessing things. Instead of moving on to becoming someone new, seeing God in a fresh way, seeing yourself in a new fresh way, there's a temptation that no one warns you for. That after you go through disorientation, things stable out a bit, to go back. To go backwards to go back to the old way, the old way of believing, the old way of living, the old way of thinking. Because it's familiar, it's comfortable, it's common to us. Anybody else doing this? You find yourself in this like sort of season of life sort of returning to old ways, old habits. I drove through a Chick-fil-A drive-through line failing to order ahead using the mobile app like some sort of Neanderthal. I'm sitting in the line, and people are just passing me by, like, (laughs) I ordered 20 minutes ago. I might go it again. Let's do it again. Let's pass that guy again. And I'm sitting there waiting like a caveman. What's going on? I went back to the old way. And on a serious note, I sense in myself and I sense in many of us this pull to return back to the old us, the old way of doing things the old way of parenting, the old way of marriage, the old way of faith. And so maybe I'm not alone. Maybe I'm not the only one starving for Advent this year. Maybe what all of us need is an invitation, a seasonal invitation to stop the regression, to not go back, but to keep moving forward into the people God is calling us to be, the people that you and I have gotten a taste of recently. We want more of, both for our sake and for the sake of the world. And if that's you, that's you. Today what we're going to do is we're going to go back into our scripture passage for today because I think in Isaiah chapter 2, one of the things that we're going to find is one particular area of our life, one particular area of all of our lives where right now, there is a strong pull to go back to the old way. And we're going to see, we're going to imagine what it would be like to stop that urge and instead keep moving forward. So let's go back to our passage. If you have your Bibles with you, you got your smart devices with you, and you want to follow along, go and return to Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to be camped out in verses 1 through 5. Uh, if you are new to studying Scripture still new to learning about the Bible and uh, who wrote the different books and what's happening in context and that sort of thing. Fear not, I'll give you a little bit of the backstory. Isaiah 
uh, is actually a book of the Bible that was written a long time before Jesus ever showed up, somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 years. 700 years before Jesus ever showed up is when these words were penned. And so you might be thinking, why are we, I thought this is the season of Advent, we're talking about, you know, Mary and Joseph, mm. like, yes, but there's also, one of the things that we do during the church, uh, in, uh, in the church during this time of year, is we revisit a lot of the passages in the Old Testament, the passages where God was preparing the way for Jesus' arrival, when God first gave word to the people of God that the Messiah was coming. And one such occurrence happens in Isaiah chapter 2. He gets one of these visions. He gets one of these visions of this coming Messiah, the Son of God, who's coming some point, somewhere down the road, coming to save us and liberate us. And here's what it looks like. So he gets this vision. In Isaiah chapter 2, he writes it down. And the vision he sees is one uh, that looks a little bit like this. He sees this future where God's going to judge between the nations and settle the disputes of all the mighty nations. They will beat their swords into iron plows. They will beat their spears into pruning tools. Nation will no longer take up sword against nation. They will no longer learn. They will not even know how to make war. So what is he seeing? The vision that Isaiah receives of what will come to fruition is a future of peace. It's a future constituted by peace. And peace is a word we talk about all the time during the Advent season, right? We hear it in all of our songs. We try to get rid of our children so we can have moments of peace, right? Like it's a seasonal thing that we're all starving for, and it's something that Scripture alludes to, that it's something we are awaiting. It's something we are anticipating. It's something we are hoping will come into our lives afresh and anew this season. And what's interesting is that uh, whenever the Bible talks about peace, it's actually a little bit different than the peace you and I are familiar with. And, what is, and Jesus says this, right? He says, the peace that I give, it's not like the one that the world gives. It passes all understanding. And what he means by this is over and over and over again, the type of peace that the Bible talks about that's coming into the world is a peace that's called shalom. Shalom. It looks like this. Shalom is a really complex, it's a very nuanced piece, meaning uh, it's not just a tranquility. It is a tranquility that comes over our mind and over our heart and over our lives. But it's also a piece that requires us to do the work to be whole. Do the work in us to become whole or the work on behalf of other people for them to become whole. Shalom is found not only when we experience a deep, deep hope and trust in God, but it's also when someone is being torn apart, someone's life is going through immense suffering, the pieces of their lives are falling apart, and we are an instrument of God to help put those things back together. It's both and. And so the implications of that is that means that the peace that you and I are searching for this season ain't just for you, but it's for the world. The peace of God is something that God wants to give to you, absolutely, to help invade those places where you're feeling anxious and worried and afraid. But the peace is also meant to be extended from you into the world and the places that need to be put back together. And again, going back to what I was just saying a couple of moments ago, 
I feel like as hard as these last couple years were, I feel like we were making just a little bit of progress on these fronts. I felt like in a couple of different places, I would see this peace, this shalom being embodied by people in the world. So externally, I, was watch, I watched people on several different occasions resist the forces of divisiveness, all the contentious elections. I watched some people sort of say, you know what, forget this. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be someone who hates everybody else or hates that person because they hold this view. Like, I want to be someone who works to bring harmony again and bring reconciliation again. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop hating you. Instead, I'm going to try to listen to you. And please listen to me so we can be a part of the healing that this world so does desperately needs. I watched this shalom embodied in people here in our church and in the community who responded, responded to the racial reckoning that occurred in the summer of 2020 and said, you know what? Maybe this isn't just a race thing. Maybe it is a faith thing that actually I have a responsibility as a follower of Jesus to hear if there is a brother or sister of mine that feels like the, the way in which we do justice and the way in which we organize ourselves is unequal. It is unjust. And so I need to get involved in the work. And that's, that's how I become an instrument of peace. And also, I saw this. This is one of the places where I was the most proud of our church over the course of this past year was not only the willingness to say that if you are someone who's been harmed and hurt, if you are someone uh, as a, who's been told your entire life that your sexual identity means you can't be a part of this thing, we're not only going to welcome you, but we're going to go into the community and find you, and we're going to try slowly, 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 but surely to try to repair, to bring peace, to bring shalom in the areas where you were harmed or hurt. And I also witnessed this internally. The last couple of years, again, as hard as they were, I feel like I actually probably was, had some of the most peaceful moments internally I've ever had. For the first time in my life, I was quick to show myself grace when I made mistakes instead of beating myself up all the time. I didn't let other people's criticism and negative opinions about me eat me alive so much. And I had no other choice. I had to learn to start trusting God with the uncertainty of my life because there was no other alternative. In many ways, I watched in myself and in many of us Say, you know what? I'm sick and tired of the old way. I'm ready for the new. And yet, there's this pull. There's this pull. There's this pull, and you can feel it too, can't you? There's this pull inside of you that's pulling you back to the old. Back to the old way of disharmony and divisiveness and discord. Back to the old way instead of being a person of peace, being a person of anxiety and worry and busyness and refusing to be content with anything in your life. You feel it too, don't you? And again, I don't know about you, but I ain't going back. I ain't going back. I've lived that life. I've been that version of myself, and it didn't work. So I refuse to go back to the old way. I'm going ahead to the new. But talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. So if you're anything like me and you're sitting there like, yeah, that sounds good. I don't want to go back to the old patterns, the old behaviors, the old ways of thinking, the old ways of living. I want to be new. I want to be new too. I want to be, this, I want to be a person of peace internally. And I want to be an instrument of peace 
out in the world. Great, wonderful. If you want to do those things in this Advent season, I want to encourage you, make sure this Advent, this waiting we're doing is an active waiting, not a passive waiting. How do I do that? By cultivating a number of different things into your spiritual diet this Advent season. The first of which is this. The first of which is this. If you want to use this Advent season on purpose, if you want it to be one of the most meaningful Advents you've had yet, not just one of nostalgia, but one where you actually felt like it changed the trajectory of your life. Number one, you want to be a person of peace? Don't just talk about it. Don't just hope for it. Don't just, "Mm, I want to be peaceful. But actually do this. Train yourself. Start this year. If you haven't done so already, train yourself to be more steadfast in your life, in your faith, emotionally and mentally. Start the training now to be someone who's not so easily shaken, tossed around, manipulated by external things. Paul writes this. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What he's saying here is that if you want to be a person of peace, that's great. What are the recipes of that? Is you're going to have to learn. You're going to have to train yourself to not be so shaken all the time by criticism, insecurity, or the events on the news. Now, I want you to notice one very, very, very important word. The first word on there was train. Okay? Train. You got to train yourself to be steadfast. Well, at least most of us do. Sometimes there's, you run into these people every once in a while who are just born into the world and they're not, uh, not easily upset, they're not easily angered. You met any of these aliens before? You got any of these aliens uh, in your family? My brother is one of these people. Yesterday, so we're all big Ohio State fans, and so uh, those of you who uh, kept uh, track of that, uh, Ohio State lost again to Michigan, our fiercest rival, again yesterday. It wasn't pretty. And so I'm angry texting the entire game, so I'm back and forth them the whole time, like, what is going on? Are they blind? Is anyone paying attention? Should I send plays in for them to use? Because nothing else is working. I sent, like, 17 texts, and he hadn't responded to one of them. And then eventually, this, again, this is my brother, he texts me back. He goes, yeah, but it was a good game. <laughs> Immediately deleted that text and went and found some other friends. I was like, all right, let's be mad together. I want to be mad. I want to be mad. Most of us, some people are born into this world that way, but most of us, you got to train yourself. you got to develop that muscle, don't you? Don't you? I'll give you an example. I'll be vulnerable with you for a moment. So when I first started in ministry, the place, one of the places where I was the shakiest, the shakiest, uh, was handling negative criticism. Ooh, buddy. Mm-mm, mm-mm. If I got an email... Uh, during my first year or two of ministry. That was negative in some way. Didn't like your sermon. It was too long. It was too short. I've never gotten one that says too short. Anyway, um, (laughs) shut up. You were not supposed to laugh at that. That was not a joke. But if I got a negative or a critical email about something I did or something we did, it haunt me for weeks. I'm ashamed to admit it now, but I was young and immature and didn't really know what I was doing yet and it would just haunt me for weeks. Everywhere I went that whole week, I'd be thinking about it. Like, why? Like, why? Oh, like, 
is there something I can do to win them back? And like, what, what did they misunderstand what I was trying to say? Or like, what if like, I don't know, like, how do I get them back on my side? Like, I would, it, would, it would bother me and haunt me for weeks. And now, I don't get them all the time, but when I do get a critical email or a critical comment, I might sit with it for an hour or so, but then I release it. I release it. So Kyle, what kind of voodoo magic did you sort of put into play to make that happen? Um, well, I didn't, uh, but it's, it, it was a product of a couple of things. It was a product of a couple of things. Um, number one, uh, it was a product of therapy. So praise God for therapy. Whoop, whoop. And number two, it required me for at least five years. And for some of you, that's super discouraging because you're like, man, I've been like trying to you know, get better at that myself. Like, when does that happen? I've been doing it for like two weeks. Like, does that, does God kind of like, when does that sort of like wash over me and I have all the peace? Like, when does that happen? Sorry. For me, it might be shorter for you, but for me, I had to pray for five years that God would release me from my idol of caring about what other people thought of me more than what God thought of me. I do it for years years. For those of you who think the spiritual life is uh, a, a sprint, oh God, it's not. It's, it's a crawl. It's a crawl. But it's so, so vitally important. Not only for your sake, but for the sake of the world. For the sake of the world. If you haven't had this happen to you yet, if you've not had this experience yet, just be prepared. Remember I talked about this piece is not only for you, but you're supposed to share that piece with the world. And if you've not had this experience happen to you yet, you will. At some point, God's going to call you to do something. God's going to call you to step out in faith. God's going to call you to serve somebody, to get involved in a place that's broken, that needs shalom, needs peace. And at first, you're going to feel all alone. Or people will criticize you for it. Like, what is he doing? What is she doing? Why you, that's a waste of time. They won't understand. I told the team, the leadership team of Peak Beginnings, that if you don't know what Peak Beginnings is, we started a tuition-free preschool uh, here this fall. And I told the leadership team there, I said, just be prepared that the shalom you're trying to enact, the peace you're trying to be an instrument of in the world, it's great, it's wonderful, it's so needed. But in the early stages... Sometimes you're going to feel like you're the only one who cares about it. Eventually help will come. Eventually support will come. But at first, when God calls you to serve, it's not uncommon for you to feel completely and totally alone. And if you never learn how to become steadfast, if you never learn, if you never train yourself to not be so shaken all the time, what other people think, you'll bail. You'll quit. And the work that God was trying to do through you in that particular little pocket of the world will go undone. Or it'll go undone by you. God will have to recruit someone else. So you want to be a, a person of peace. That's great. That's great. That's wonderful. Uh, but number one, uh, you better make sure that you are training yourself to become 
uh, not as shaky, uh, but as more steadfast as scripture calls us. What else? What else? How else can I be a person of peace? Another thing I want to encourage you to do this Advent season, another thing I want to encourage you to cultivate into your spiritual diet uh, this Advent season is not only that, but I also want you to uh, work really hard uh, this season if you want to be a, become a person of peace to accept, not refuse, not abandon, not transcend, but accept your limitations. When scripture talks about people of peace, persons of peace, these are also people who are willing to accept their own limitations. This scripture right below it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I believe this should be in every single bathroom mirror of every American Christian on planet Earth, okay? So, our planet Earth, uh, United States. You know what I'm trying to say. Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul writes this. He says, the more I'm following Jesus, the more I'm starting to understand that I have the freedom to do anything I want, but not everything I do is helpful. I have the freedom to do anything, but I also don't want to be controlled by anything. In other words, what he's saying is, friends, he's almost like saying to all of us Christians, especially those who are born in the land of the free that sure, you might leave this place today and have tons of freedom to do whatever the heck you want, but not everything is good for you. Many of you have so many options for how you spend your time and how you live your life and the things that you pursue, but not every one of those pathways is good or healthy for you or for the world, right? The reason why this has to, I feel like us, we here in America, need to be indoctrinated with this gospel truth so much is because we, we hate limitations, don't we? We hate limitations. If you needed evidence of this, uh, just look back to three days ago when you were sitting around your Thanksgiving feast, you just finished the meal, your belt is fighting, scratching, clawing to stay on and not blow up with all of your internal insides, okay? You have eaten so much that you've actually defied all the laws of physiology, biology, physics for that matter. You're about to blow up, but guess what? Instead of quitting and calling in and saying, I'm all done, someone rounds the corner with a dessert plate and you go, oh yes please, I will have more. <laughs> we hate limitations. We hate having boundaries. And I'll say this, again, going, harking back to the season of disorientation that we're coming out of. Listen, were some of the limitations that were imposed upon us the last couple of years the worst? For sure. Were they miserable? Yes. Were they inconvenient? Oh, my gosh. Were they annoying? Oh, my gosh. But one of the things that they did is they helped me realize how liberating it can be when you actually are only responsible for a few things instead of all the things. Anybody else have that experience? I'll tell you what, it was liberating. I'm not, I don't want to go back. Woo, sweet Jesus. I do not want to go back. But it was liberating for a moment to see what my life could be like if I actually strategically limited what got my time, what got my energy, and what got my attention. In the UK, they did a study, uh, and they, like, they're trying to figure out, you know, the average person, it seems like they're, we're always involved in so many things, sports and activities and friend gatherings and da 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 And in the UK, they found this, that at least in Britain, I'd be curious how this uh, sort of puts the overlays on top of America, but, you know, we'll stick with it for now. In the UK, they found that the average person 
juggles between seven and 10 roles. The average person juggles between seven and 10 roles. What's a role? So one role, if you're married, is partner. Uh, or uh, if you have kids, parent, uh, friend, sibling, uh, son, uh, you name it. Like, or all of us have all these various roles. Employee, we have all these roles that we fulfill in life. And what's fascinating is that same study found that the people who had the most amount of happiness, the most amount of contentment, the most amount of peace, the word that we're talking about today, strategically limited the amount of roles that they juggled to four to six at the most. The healthiest people out there are accepting their limitations and they're getting rid of the roles that don't matter the most to them or to God. And I thought about this and I applied it to my own life and I was, I was thinking back to my own life and I was like, good gracious, this is absolutely true of my own life. This is absolutely true of our family's life. We had that liberating experience during the last couple of years of going, oh my gosh, I only have a couple of things to pay attention to. And it's almost like we forgot all of the wisdom that we received because the moment we stepped into the fall, what did we do? We overcommitted ourselves. We had 500 things every single night that we were running off to between church, work, school, kids, sports, soccer, you name it. And so when I was reading the study, I started to realize, holy cow, like I, the times when I've been the most happiest... The, the times when I've been the most peaceful are the times when I said, no, I'm only going to occupy four to five, maybe six roles, follower of Jesus. Uh, I'm going to be a partner. I'm going to be uh, a parent. I'm going to be a friend and a family member. I'm going to be a pastor. Uh, and then maybe, maybe, maybe I might temporarily occupy a sixth one for like a moment and then I'm going to come right back. Looks like this. This is my, uh, this is the uh, visual depiction of this, uh, which I felt like was actually a pretty, uh, a pretty accurate depiction of uh, me and my life. The moment I start tackling more, accepting more, putting on more hats and more responsibilities is the, exactly the moment where my life begins to feel the most chaotic. And friends, again, this not only applies to the internal peace that you and I are all seeking, but the external peace we're trying to be an instrument of in the world. Some of you, even hearing, whenever I talk about, even these last couple moments as I've been talking about being an instrument of peace in the world, some of you are listening to this, you're like, you, it's, it, that's a foreign concept to you. You're like, I don't even know what that looks like. I don't even know where I would do that. And the reason for which is because the world that we live in nowadays saturates you with so many places that need shalom, need God's peace. You turn on the news, you get on social media, you'll, be, you'll, you'll run into 10 places that need you to get involved. We need you to help. We need you to help serve. You'll run into so many before lunchtime that you get so saturated and overcome by all of them that what do you do when you feel so overwhelmed by the sheer need and all the places that need God's attention? What do we do? Nothing. Nothing. It's too much. The need's too great. I can't make a difference. Okay, I'm done. And so maybe this is the first time someone's ever said this to you. Um, I hope not. But friends, the thing that maybe you need to hear this Advent season is that maybe the answer is actually you and I, this Advent season, 
strategically limiting the amount of things that you're involved in, the places that God needs your presence out in the world. Maybe this is the first time anyone's ever said to you that, friends, you have permission. You have permission to not care for all of the things going on in the world. Maybe, just maybe, the only place God needs you is in exactly the place where you can use your God-given gifts to meet the need that you are most passionate about. So maybe for you, that's homelessness. Maybe for you, that's foster care. Maybe for you, that's tutoring. I don't know what it is for you, but where the kingdom needs you is in that spot. Because if everybody in this room did that, can you imagine the change that would occur in all the places that are starving for God's peace in the world right now? Maybe, maybe, maybe. It's time. It's time, right now it's time to trade in a wide life for a deep one. Maybe it's time to trade in the life of being involved and aware of all the things to a life that said, no, I'm supposed to be here. And I'm going to be only here unless God pulls me somewhere else. So number two, you want to be a person of peace this Advent season. Learn, train yourself to accept your limitations. And the third and final one is this. And I'll close here. Band, you can go and come on up. For the third and final one, the third and final thing I want to invite you to consider, to cultivate, to incorporate into your spiritual diet this Advent season, is friends, uh, you cannot be. It's actually impossible to be a person of peace and not practice this third one. Because when you go back to Isaiah chapter 2, this scene that we see where people are lying down their weapons, nations are lying down their weapons, they're not making war anymore, they're making peace. One of the things that that says to us is that if, friends, you want to be a person of peace this Advent season, then you and I are going to have to learn, and maybe you're going to have to start the journey of releasing your enemies. If you want to be a person of peace this Advent season, you're going to have to learn. You're going to at least have to start trying to release your enemies. This is always the part of Jesus' teaching where I feel like even if you're not a believer, like you get down with a lot of the stuff that Jesus says. You're like, man, I like this dude. Like he's cool and he's sweet. And he's always inclusive and accepting. That's awesome. And then he starts talking about love and enemies and people are like, mm, well, it was good while it lasted. <laughs> This is a little too hard. I don't want to do that. Mm-mm. Nope. In this Advent season, I just want you to uh, hear me out. I want you to hear me out. Many of you listening to this, uh, you might actually be like, oh, yeah, I'm actually, um, I'm not, I don't, I'm not opposed to that. I just don't feel like I have to do that because I don't have any enemies. I don't have anyone this Advent season that comes to mind that's in my heart or my mind uh, right now. Um, I don't have anyone that I'm like, you know about to throw a spear at that Isaiah chapter 2. But by the way, if you do have a spear, um, I would love to see that. So um, just take a picture. If we can. Uh, I would love to see the situation you've got in your garage because I feel like there'd be some medieval situation I would love to uh, put eyes on. Anyway, but again, most of us in this room, we don't take this scripture literally. We don't read this literally. We don't go, man, I don't actually have anybody that I'm about to go to war with. I don't have an enemy. And friends, this is where I just want to uh, remind you that part of what Jesus did when he came Uh, was to teach us that the ways of Jesus are not only to uh, forgive our enemies, 
but he also redefined what an enemy was. You ready? Ready for me to burst your bubble? Ugh, this is the part where I'm like, ugh, can't we just, I don't want to, Jesus. But he redefines an enemy as not just someone that you are physically trying to harm or you're fighting against, but he defines it this way. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, says, you're familiar with the command of the ancients, do not murder. But I'm telling you that anyone who so much is enraged, enraged, harboring resentment, harboring hatred, harboring, uh, harboring this sort of ill will, is guilty of murder. And what's Jesus getting at? What he's getting at is he's trying to shock our system to help you and I understand that an enemy is not just someone externally, physically, we have in the world. But it's anyone that in your mind, maybe you, you don't actively wish for their harm, but let's be honest, you'd be okay with it. Like if you saw some suffering transpiring on their social media page, you'd be like, <laughs> I didn't say anything, I didn't say anything, I didn't say anything. Someone who just fantasizes a little bit about what it would be like for that person or that group of people to suffer some sort of harm to get back at all the stuff that they've done to me, to the world. Now, is your pool of enemies getting a little bit bigger? Is it getting a little bigger? Some of you came from enemy territory this week, didn't you? Didn't you? Yeah, 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 yeah. And listen, there's a part of me that doesn't like it either. There's a part of me that doesn't like it either. But here's what I'm going to challenge you to do this Advent season. I'm going to challenge you to find it in you some way, somehow, to release your enemies, release them of the hatred and the resentment you have for them. Why? Because about four or five years ago, I started realizing that this was the way in which Jesus defined enemies, and I had a lot more enemies than I thought I did. And I realized that if I didn't use that advent four years ago to release my enemies, number one, it was going to eat me alive. It was going to eat me alive. Proverbs chapter 14 says that anger is like a cancer in your bones. It'll eat you alive. And number two, I realized that if I didn't do it, if I didn't release them of the debt that they owed me, I would miss Jesus when he did arrive in my life. And the reason why I was going to miss him is because when he showed up, I was too busy actively hating and wishing harm upon the very person that he came to save in other words, I missed him. We run the risk of missing him and his arrival this Advent season because we're too busy working for the opposing team. So friends, if you don't want to find yourself there, I sure as heck don't want to find myself there. I invite you to the hard the laborious, the good gracious, the unbelievable liberating force and way of peace this Advent season. 
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. All God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.